Hello, I'm Stephen Carr and welcome to the Science Engagement Podcast. Our own local star, the Sun, is actually quite an unremarkable star. It's one of an estimated 200 billion in our own galaxy alone. So there are an estimated 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe, so that makes a very large number of what are essentially nuclear fusion reactions. When I say our star is unremarkable, it pretty much is just a normal, what astronomers call a main-sequence star, in the middle of its nuclear fusion process, converting hydrogen into helium and giving off energy as a result. Star formation happens when atoms of light elements, such as hydrogen, are squeezed under enough pressure for their nuclei to undergo nuclear fusion. All stars are the result of a balance of forces. The force of gravity compresses atoms in interstellar gas until the fusion reactions begin and then exert an outward pressure. As long as the inward force of gravity and the outward force generated by the fusion reactions are equal, the star remains stable. Dense clouds of gas are common in galaxies. These clouds are called nebulae. A typical nebula is many light years across and contains enough mass to make several thousand stars the size of our sun. The majority of the gas in nebulae consists of molecules of hydrogen and helium, but most nebulae also contain atoms of other heavier elements. These heavier atoms are remnants of older stars which have exploded in an event we call a supernova. Some astronomers think that a gravitational or magnetic disturbance causes the nebula to collapse. As the gases collect, they lose potential energy, which results in an increase in temperature. As the collapse continues, the temperature increases. The core of the cloud collapses faster than the outer parts, and the cloud begins to rotate faster and faster to conserve angular momentum. When the core reaches a temperature of about 2,000 degrees Kelvin, the molecules of hydrogen gas break apart into hydrogen atoms. Eventually, the core reaches a temperature of around 10,000 degrees Kelvin, and it begins to look like a star when fusion reaction begins. It then becomes what is called a protostar. When pressure and temperature in the core becomes great enough to sustain nuclear fusion, the outward pressure acts against the gravitational force. So at this stage, the core is about the size of a sun. The remaining dust envelope surrounding the star heats up and glows brightly in the infrared part of the spectrum. At this point, the visible light from the new star cannot penetrate the envelope, and eventually radiation pressure from the star blows away the envelope, and the new star begins its evolution. The properties and lifetime of the new star depends on its mass and size, so a star like our own sun has a lifetime of about 10 billion years, and it's just middle-aged, with another 5 billion years or so left. Studying stellar evolution is not an easy task. It's not as if astronomers can look at one particular star from its birth, life and death to really understand the processes involved. It would just take too long, so what they do is to observe stars at their various stages of life and piece together a star's evolution using that data. Our nearest neighbouring star, for example, is 4.2 light years away, called Proxima Centauri. With current rocket propulsion technology here on Earth, it would take around 40,000 years to reach. But then, astronomers don't need to travel to a star to observe it. Telescopes are the obvious answer. With their own sun being eight light minutes away, astronomers have a pretty good view and understanding of a main-sequence star, halfway through its own lifetime. So what are the different types of stars in the universe? The majority of all stars are main-sequence stars. Our sun is a main-sequence star, and so are our nearest neighbours, Sirius and Alpha Centauri A. 
Main sequence stars can vary in size, mass and brightness, but they're all doing the same thing, converting hydrogen into helium in their cores, releasing a tremendous amount of energy. When a star has consumed its stock of hydrogen in its core, fusion stops and the star no longer generates an outward pressure to counteract the inward pressure pulling it together. A shell of hydrogen around the core ignites, continuing the life of the star, but causes it to increase in size dramatically. The ageing star has become a red giant and can be a hundred times larger than it was in its main sequence phase. When this hydrogen fuel is used up, further shells of helium, and even heavier elements, can be consumed in fusion reactions. The red giant phase of a star's life will only last a few hundred million years before it runs out of fuel completely, and it becomes a white dwarf. The outward light pressure from the fusion reaction stops, and the star collapses inward under its own gravity. A white dwarf shines because it was once a hot star, but there's no fusion reactions happening anymore. A white dwarf will just cool down until it becomes the background temperature of the universe. But this process will take hundreds of billions of years, so no white dwarfs have actually cooled down that far yet. Red dwarf stars are the most common kinds of stars in the universe. These are main sequence stars, but they have such a low mass that they're much cooler than stars like our own sun. But they have another advantage. Red dwarf stars are able to keep the hydrogen fuel mixing into their core, and so they can conserve their fuel for much longer than other stars. Astronomers estimate that some red dwarf stars will burn for up to 10 trillion years. If a star has between 10 and 30 times the mass of our own star, it doesn't form a white dwarf when it dies. Instead, the star dies in a catastrophic supernova explosion, and the remaining core becomes a neutron star. As its name implies, a neutron star is an exotic type of star that is composed entirely of neutrons. This is because the intense gravity of the neutron star crushes protons and electrons together to form neutrons. If stars are even more massive, they will become black holes instead of neutron stars after the supernova goes off. Neutron stars are also the smallest and densest of all stars, typically with a radius of about 30 kilometers, and a teaspoon of neutron star material would weigh billions of tons. Supergiants and hypergiants are the largest stars in the universe. The hypergiant with the largest known diameter is VY Canis Majoris, which is about 2,000 times wider than the Sun. This is roughly the same diameter as the orbit of Saturn. It would take about 1,000 years to orbit VY Canis Majoris in a jumbo 747. The evolutionary sequences for stars are described by their position on the graph used by astronomers called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Most stages of stellar evolution, beginning with protostars, have a specific position on the HR diagram. I won't dwell on the HR diagram, as for the purpose of this podcast, it's not needed in great detail. As mentioned previously, some stars at the end of their life undergo catastrophic explosions, known as supernova. There are generally two types of supernovae, type 1 and type 2. Astronomers classify supernovae according to their absorption lines of different chemical elements that appear in their spectra. So if a supernova spectrum contains lines of hydrogen, it's classified a type 2. Otherwise, it's a type 1. The resulting brightness from the explosion will briefly, for a few seconds, outshine all the billions of stars in the host galaxy combined. 
only three naked-eye supernova events have been observed in the Milky Way during the last thousand years. The most recent directly observed supernova in the Milky Way was Kepler's supernova in 1604, but the remnants of more recent supernovae have been found. Observations of supernovae in other galaxies suggest they occur in the Milky Way on average about three times every century, so fortunately for us they pose no danger for the immediate future. It's worth noting that supernovas are responsible for the distribution of heavier elements throughout a galaxy. Some stars at the end of their life will go supernova and scatter elements up to iron on the periodic table. These elements, along with dust and gas, may go on to form planets or become part of a protostar, and the whole process will begin again. It's often said that we are made of stardust, and literally that is true. Every carbon atom in your body originated from the core of a star at some point in the distant past. It's incredible how important stars are to life and the life cycle of planets. So there it is, a brief overview of what a star is, how it's formed, what types of stars there are, and their differing outcomes at the end of their lives. Thanks for listening. Until next time from the Science Engagement Podcast, goodbye.